Hey guys, Sean Hayes here. Jason Bateman, Will Arnett, and I had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sit down with not one, not two, but three presidents of the United States on our recent episode of Smartless. That's because President Biden, a returning guest, brought two of his favorite pals, former Presidents Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, all joined us for unforgettable conversation. It's a historic episode of Smartless as we pry into the minds of these remarkable leaders. We'll cover everything from their time in office, America's responsibilities in the world, and their personal passions in an episode full of some candid stories, insightful perspectives, and a few surprises along the way. Whether you're a political junkie or just curious about the inner workings of the Oval Office, this episode is a must listen. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to hear from three of the most influential figures in recent American history. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Last podcast on the left here with you. We have some big announcements about live shows. Many big announcements. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be coming to many, many, many cities around the United States this summer, including visiting a couple of the states that we were number one hey, in that, right. uh, that poll that was done not too long ago. And the first state that we're going to be going to is Arizona. Awesome. Yeah. We're going to be coming to Phoenix, Arizona. We're going to be playing the Van Buren. Uh, tickets are on sale right now. That show is Thursday, uh, June 28th. Then the very next day, we're going to be flying to Boston, Massachusetts to do the Wilbur Theater. Uh, and then the day after that, we're going to be flying to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to do the Trocadero. So we're definitely just doing a triangle tour of America, which I don't know. I don't know if we're calling it that. But we can't wait to fucking be there. I think we're going to call it Hangover in the Sky Tour. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then on July 6th, we're going to be doing Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. Finally going to go back to Portland. Yes. And it won't be covered in snow this time. Very good. Love Portland, though. And then finally, our last uh, big show, our last big venue show uh, is going to be in San Diego, California at the Balboa Theater on July 20th. That's going to be during San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, and we're also going to be appearing at the Bumbershoot Festival yeah. in Seattle, Washington uh, at the end of August. We hope to be adding uh, a few more shows to this year. That's definitely not the end of it, uh, but that's what we got uh, for the next couple of months. So go to lastpodcastontheleft.com uh, to buy tickets to all of those shows. Come see our wares and sundries, and we hope that you are duly entertained. And if not, I don't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> hail yourselves, everyone, and enjoy this episode of The Last Podcast on the Left. Hail Satan! There's no place to escape to. This is The Last Podcast on the Left. <laughs> That's when the cannibalism started. What was that? Man, oh man, it is hot out there. Oh yeah. Um, Man, I am in fucking... <laughs> Weather talk. Let's do some weather talk. <laughs> I tell you what, I am in uh, a central Florida city right now. It is 102 outside. Wonderful. And it is slowly but surely becoming 102 inside. I am in a bathing suit. 
Um, I am slick. You are. To the touch. I can see that. Look at me shake my flaps. Wonderful. How's the Red Lobster? Was the Red Lobster good? It had a police line around it, so I didn't go to it. <laughs> right. So I Welcome went to a place to- <laughs> called Good Value Restaurant. Very good. Welcome to the last podcast on the left, everyone. I am Ben Kissel with Marcus Parks. Hello. We're here, New- we're here in New York City, and as Henry has already alluded to, he's in beautiful, sunny Florida. I'm in the birthplace of Johnny Thunders. Oh, really? No shit. Yeah, and also, um, this is where the plane crash that killed fucking uh, uh, Ozzy's uh, guitarist. Oh, what? Randy Rhodes? Wow. Yep. That's all they have to say about this place. Uh, you know, uh, also, a lot of music uh, it has history. the Watermelon Festival. Each one keeps saying, like, you gotta be here for the Watermelon Festival. <laughs> and I was like, when, when is it? They're like, not anytime soon. Right. Like, oh, good. Well, then I won't be here for it. All right. Well, today's episode, this is a long time coming, and I am personally, like, extremely thrilled to learn more about the murder and the life of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. We're talking Tupac, and we're talking Biggie. Yeah. So the 1996 murders of gangster rappers Tupac Shakur and Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., have generated conspiracy theories beyond imagine, blaming everyone from the reasonable to the ridiculous, the LAPD, to Oprah. What? And it's about time somebody brought fucking Oprah down. (laughs) Because when she orchestrated the murders of the notorious B.I.G. and uh, Tupac Shakur, she took a step too far as far as I'm concerned. She used to have little people on her show bowling each other. Well, you know, Oprah's the only one that could get away with it. That's what I would say. Well, the reason why these conspiracy theories exist in such a numerous fashion is because of two reasons. One, these two artists were beyond beloved in their time and have only gotten bigger since their deaths. So there's a lot of emotion here to deal with when it comes to fans. Mm. There's a lot of conspiracies about the murder of Biggie and Tupac, mainly because, I mean, what you, you said, where, where we've seen in the past, uh, where there's a lot of emotions, there are a lot of conspiracies because oh, yeah. people want to know why. Like, why did these people get murdered? These people I love. There's got to be some kind of thing that led up to this. And also, right. these guys are surrounded by some of the biggest bullshitters that you've ever seen. They are all. Everybody knew Pac. Everybody. It's like every interview, every doc about them has the same. We're like, I knew Pac. I knew Pac. I held his guns in a basket for him one time in Sacramento. And you're like, right, we don't right. know anything about him. Well, that would require a fair level of friendship there if that did happen. Well, unlike, say, like the murder of John Lennon, mm-hmm. the murders of Biggie and Tupac are officially still unsolved. Hmm. But unofficially, what many people don't know is that it's more or less known who was behind each separate murder and who pulled the trigger in each case. I heard it was Oprah. Yeah, she could get out from under Stedman. I got your fucking ass. <laughs> Good job. You got You did oh, yeah. it. Uh, in both cases, there was motive and there was means. But like mm. the vast majority of things that end in murder are... Both are fantastically stupid, Hmm. and maybe that's why people have been reluctant to accept the truth. We want the deaths of our heroes to mean something, but unfortunately, sometimes death comes just because you weren't paying attention to what was going on around you, Hmm. and it seems like that's exactly what happened here. You gotta be careful who you surround yourself with. 
I feel like the big one big lesson I've learned from this story is that you got to pick your friends carefully and your enemies even more carefully. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I think I've made a horrendous mistake just judging by the glisten coming off your body right now <laughs> that I'm forced to stare at as you wear a bathing suit in a Florida hotel room. Yeah, man, I'm a great fucking enemy because no matter what, you tussle with me, you get the grease. <laughs> grease comes on you. <laughs> I don't want the grease. <laughs> Uh, for those of you too young to remember, the mm. early to mid-90s were partly defined in popular culture by the East Coast-West Coast gangster rap rivalry. Oh, yeah. And also, there used to be a thing called the dial-up modem. <laughs> well, and, and now hear me now. Listen, sit here, put down your, your zip-zapper. What is that called? Is that called a... What, you're twisting with your thumbs? <laughs> What's that called? I, iPhone? You're doing something with your phones. Back in the day, we only had one phone, and your mother used to beat you with it. And if she was on there looking for money from your father, you couldn't use the internet to see nude pictures of Psylocke. That's very true. So Biggie was East and Tupac was West, and the whole thing culminated with their murders. But despite what fronts these guys put up, at the end of the day, they were really just artists. Right. Even though there were a few exceptions, a lot of the guys on the East and West Coast were pretty much playing a character, and they yeah. were damn good at it, too. Well, I mean, you know, being from Wisconsin, I understand regional feuds. I mean, those mother effers from Minnesota <laughs> don't even get soda, or you're going to call soda pop? Is that right? I don't think so, my friend. And also, it's a bubbler, not a water fountain. Okay, we could do this all day. I mean, I swear to God, if I'm around somebody who calls it pop instead of soda, I want to fucking shoot him in the face with my fucking gun. I understand. I don't fuck y'all talking about it's Coke. Coke is a yeah, is a flavor yeah. of soda. It means nothing. Good lord. Now, some of these artists sold dope when they were kids, but none of the big stars were truly living the life. As Sticky Fingers from Onyx put it, if he was actually a gangster, he'd be out there actually doing it right. instead of talking about it. They wouldn't have time to record rap albums. These men are poets. Yeah. They are writers. They're, yeah. they're artists. They make cool rhymes and dance rhythms. That's what they want to do. They want to make people dance. It's right. not. It's like when Ozzy said back in the day when they blamed him for the suicide of his fucking like the saying that he had backmasked suicide like hypnotism into his albums, and he's like, "Why would I want to kill my fans? I'm trying to sell them records." Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that's important to remember that because it got totally blown out of proportion, especially for a young naive boy in Wisconsin such as myself. I mean, I did lose sight of the fact that these are just entertainers. Yeah, but because some of them needed to be next to that life, because their image and ego demanded that they needed to appear to be at least kind of criminal, and because some of them just liked it, they surrounded themselves with actual criminals. And it was their association with these criminals that got them killed. Mm. But in order for us to really tell the story of Biggie and Tupac, we got to tell the story of just how the East Coast-West Coast rivalry came to be. All right. What I will say is my my one experience on a Scorsese film is that it's very similar to that. As they talked about, like, during Goodfellas and shit, mm. all those mobsters hung out. There was the, the idea is that they all felt real cool. Like, De Niro got to go eat at Rayo's with the guys from the fucking, like, Caprese family. And they would go and it would just be like, oh, the espresso you have on set is, uh... 
Not something I want to negotiate with. And they all have to go and get him new coffee and shit. <laughs> that was The Wolf of Wall Street, of course. Of Still course. a very good movie. <laughs> yes. But before we get into the history, let's acknowledge our sources today. Okay. The first is Murder Rap by Detective Greg Kading, who is the lead detective in the Biggie Smalls case when it was reopened in the late 2000s as, no shit, Operation Wrap It Up. Uh, you know, I just, I do, it's, it is on theme to be punny when investigating rap, uh-huh. I guess. Uh, a little wordplay in there might be a suitable for the, uh, for the name of the, uh, of the investigation, but at the same time, leave the humor to the comics. Operation Wrap It Up also sounds like one of those, like, mobile DJ booths that, like, goes, like, to play at, like, bar mitzvahs. And yes. <laughs> Our other source today is the fantastic book, Original Gangsters, The Untold Story of Dr. Dre, Easy e Ice Cube, and Tupac Shakur and the Birth of West Coast Rap by Ben Westhoff, hailed throughout the hip-hop world as painstakingly researched and accurate. Okay. It's an awesome book. Yeah. I keep getting sucked into stories that don't matter to the episode. Like, I was I was, I was, was deep in it. I, it it's great. Yeah. You should check yeah. it out. Now, I will actually say reading this book made me a little less apprehensive about tackling this subject matter. For an example, I will read a small excerpt. All right. Dre's productivity had slowed to a trickle by 1995. He wasn't feeling the gangland vibe at Can-Am and produced only two of All Eyes on Me's more than two dozen songs. Still, those two are doozies. I, I, I can just imagine Ben Stein reading this book and just being like, it is a little edgy. <laughs> He uses the word sous-son, the, the French word, like five or six times. And you're like, well, this is, he is far outside. I like he does make me feel comfortable just being like, thank you so much for allowing me to be a part of the rap scene, Mr. Westhoff. And now I can show the whole gangland world my J. Crew wonderful canvas shorts that ride a sous-sant amount above my knees. Yes, well, Dre did. As soon as he created those two tracks, he said, with any luck, they'll say they're doozies. So that's good. But all joking aside, this guy really knows what he's talking about. He wrote the book over a period of five years and talked with everyone, from major players like Ice Cube and Dr. Dre to some of the more ancillary but still important guys like Tupac's stepbrother, Mo Preem. Okay. And I am very thankful for this book, as this is admittedly a genre of music that it could be said that we are not necessarily well-versed in. Speak for yourself. Yeah, I don't really speak the rhymes of the street, (laughs) but I feel them in my bones, and I do understand, because I'm from the dirty streets in New York City. I saw the streets that Notorious B.I.G. rapped about. I walk those streets. I put on my little pump-up shoes in those streets, and so it's nice to be back in it, man. You're not. No, you're from Queens. Biggie was from Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. That's like a 45-minute drive away, if not an hour. It's just... You just take their stores and and you flip them to the other side. Yep. That's what I would say, and that's what I was. We had a lot of um, just fat guys washing porches, just different skin color. Different things there happening. Tupac's changes, very significant in my life. Yeah. Dear Mama, wonderful song. I had the best of. 
And indeed, it was very good. Oh, yeah. Best and I put of it in my Super C- Fan had the best of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. And I put it in my disc bin, my CD changer, uh-huh. and it could play in my Thunderbird because it had shock absorbent. <laughs> it had a shock absorbent uh, technology. That was yeah. pretty cool. I mean, personally, like, I listened to all this stuff like obsessively when I was a kid in the 90s, but it's not something that I know like a ton about. I had to do a lot more research on this one to like, figure out the history that I did for, say, like the Kurt Cobain episode, yes. which I already knew a ton about. It's such a compelling story, though. Yeah. Yeah. And getting back into it, you realize, and there's something about reading about the context of all the music makes the music so much better. I've been listening yeah. to Notorious B.I.G. all <laughs> fucking week, and it's great because you you feel his history in it that's the one beautiful thing about hip-hop i think right. is that it has you can feel the history you can feel them like kind of bring because like, every song's like a story half the time yeah. and so you see little slices of their life and you get it a little bit more yes and not to harp on this uh, too much but this music was really considered dangerous very like my, dangerous my friend got kicked out of the house uh, after he bought snoop dogg's doggy style he was just gone like like <laughs> as if he came home and it was like whatever like i believe in the devil now and his father was a pastor and he's like, you're gone. Dude, that's how serious people took this music. And Tipper Gore was out there, at, you know, in front of Congress being like, we need parental advisories. This really st- uh, sent a shockwave through the Midwest. Not just Tipper Gore. Not yeah. just Tipper Gore. Dan Quayle was mm. on the campaign trail, like, quoting Ice-T lyrics. Right. I mean, and it was all of the news stories were the same. It's like, you may never heard of these artists, <laughs> but <laughs> it's guaranteed your kids have. Right. And then it would just go on from there and talk about how all of them were psychopaths. It was was a musical version of Reefer Madness. It really was, <laughs> yes. it was like crazy. Anyway, I was definitely forced by my huge friend growing up, Nicholas Venezia, to sing the chorus to Gangster's Paradise at the elementary school talent show. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, my bro- my older brother did get grounded for a month for owning uh, the Naughty by Nature album. That was very tame, though. Oh, he, really, I, very tame. And you know, I'm just gonna say this: most people are naughty by nurture. Nurture versus nature, ladies <laughs> yes. and gentlemen. No it's one's a mix- or it is a mixture. Okay. So as always, we're going to do our best to do the history justice, but please buy and read original gangsters. Because this right here, what we're going to do, this is going to be a simplified tip-top skim of the history of gangster rap. And also go read, go buy uh, Murder Rap as well. That's more the second episode. Uh, but both of these books are, are fucking great, but specifically original gangsters is amazing. Right. And basically we're telling this story this big the history so you could really see how it built up and explain why like the conspiracies about Biggie and Tupac's murder were uh they, they kind of get deflated and because you have to understand a whole story just to get to what the fuck happened between the two of them right now this story is really about record labels and the people behind them specifically mm. two of them Bad Boy Records, run by Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, a.k.a. Puffy, a.k.a. P. Diddy, Mm. and Death Row Records, run by hip-hop's greatest villain, Marion Knight, a.k.a. Suge. God, he sends shivers down my spine just hearing the name. He's scary. Good Lord. You know what he reminds me of? A smarter version of, you remember the Asian guy with metal teeth and James Bond? Wasn't it Jaws? Yeah. I think that was his name. Dangerous guy, though. This guy, he was so big, he he would like pop through your television screen. Yeah. But before we get to them, we've got to talk about the label that brought gangster rap to the world. Ruthless Records. Ruthless Records was started by Eric Wright, a.k.a. Eazy-E, and Andre Young, a.k.a. 
Dr. Dre. Now, even though Dre had grown up in a rough neighborhood, for the most part, he'd stayed away from any kind of street crime. He was a music nerd. Yeah, he was a music nerd who, uh, he loved P-Funk, like P-Funk was right. his favorite, his mom was a music nerd, uh, so he'd spend all of his time in his garage like learning how to DJ. Again, they, they are artists. Of course. Yeah. Honestly, the story he was talking about, so much fun about how he got into music, where he went to go see P-Funk, and he was like when the mothership came down, oh, nice. and he was just, it blew his fucking mind. I was like, that, yay, I get it. Yeah, Naturally. I get it. Easy, on the other hand, was a different story. Although it seems like his heart was never really in the drug game, he only got into selling drugs after inheriting a large stash from a relative who was shot and killed. Hmm. He's like, I've got all these drugs. Might as well sell them. I, I, am yeah. su- I am surprised the government didn't come and take 40% of those drugs <laughs> in an inheritance tax. Just being like, I'm sorry, we will need 40% of that. That's a very hot take on inheritance tax, Kessel, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. And when that stash ran out, Easy continued to hustle. But without a big pile of free drugs to back him up, Easy found the business was a bit more of a life-threatening hassle than he was willing to put up with. Absolutely. He was also tiny, man. Yeah. And when you're tiny... You gotta be so much tougher than everybody else. <laughs> and it's just not the same. You guys don't understand what kind of fucking tornado, how I have to wild out anytime I want to get anything done in this life. Wild out? Like when all those uh, teenagers made you uh, impersonate Chris Farley before you could get on the train here in New York and you did it? I used my skills as a performer. I used my skills as a performer to do that. Okay, yes. and that's a, more of a testament to my talent and quick thinking. Right. Also, Easy E had to have in order to survive the hard streets. Yes, he did. And yes, being a drug dealer, it's not very lucrative. It's a lot of work. It's weird hours, mm-hmm. and you're just around horrible people. Yeah. So instead of selling drugs, Easy decided to go with his real passion, hip hop. And the perfect person to pair himself with was Dr. Dre, who was already starting to make waves as an innovative producer, even as a teenager. Wow. Although it must be said that early West Coast hip hop was a hell of a lot more innocent and goofy in its infancy. This is an excerpt from an early Dre produced track called Monster Rappin'. Oh. Dracula and Frankenstein will always be friends. Well, to be I'm telling you something that I know for a fact. If you mess with me, it's kind of cute. Uh, it's awesome. Why? It what? Why didn't music end with that song and begin with that song? That is a great tune. But what really surprised me upon reading the book was that how a lot of gangster rap started with parody rap. Yeah, and then it was all bo- boosted by Weird Al. Weird Al, a Weird Al success with another one rides the bus was a part of the the thing that helped make gangster rap happen. God, yeah, well, I because, love it because Weird Al was a he was from right north of South Central LA. He was like from Linwood or right north of Compton. Mm. So like Weird Al was like kind of a neighborhood guy. (laughs) So another one rides the bus came out and so they started the another one of the really weird ones was called Rappin' Duke uh, and it was a guy rapping as John Wayne. 
Hey, and, all right. Yeah, and the, and actually that song was name checked in Biggie's song Juicy uh, as like talking about like look at how far we've come. We we, we went <laughs> oh, from rapping Duke to this. That's so funny. Because all songs about like rags to riches. That's right, why it's right. such a great fucking song. Great. I like that man. That monster song is in my head. Oh yeah, Dracula <laughs> and wow. Frankenstein will always be friends. I will Ooh. keep that in my heart forever. Yeah, absolutely. Monster it brings you, makes you think of Monster Squad. That great. Uh, <laughs> children's film yeah and that's not the extent of dre's goofiness before gangster rap was electro rap what we just listened to was more like electro rap and dre went all in with his first group world-class wrecking crew nice their first photo shoot featured dre wearing eyeliner and a sequined form-fitting cream-colored jumpsuit complete with a stethoscope to really drive the dr dre point home i get it it was during glam time as well so it's like the 80s glam rock was also big right and so everybody was doing makeup and so his buddy kind of convinced him to put on this outfit they made this like doctor's uniform for him to wear and the whole time was like i don't like this he's like no everybody's into this shit man meanwhile he comes out of the dressing room in a full lace fucking like suit and dre's like we're gonna get fucking murdered when people see this shit they looked pretty good, though. Well, the style in L.A. back then was much different because uh, dudes from New York would come to play in L.A. Like Run DMC would come. Uh, and, you know, it's Run DMC. Uh, and then they'd show up in L.A. and they'd go to the clubs in L.A. And everyone was wearing, like, these form-fitting, like, suits. Everyone looked like an extra from New Jack City. Okay. Like, so they were, like, they dressed, like, super nice. Okay. And New York was just like, I don't know about this. Hmm. Well, New York had the fucking Gilligan's hat, big glasses, and dookie ropes. Because the big thing was, like, the do- the dookie rope is what made him, like, a very specific, it was a very specific New York style. Those are the big gold chain necklaces that you're talking about that look like WWE ropes? Yeah, it's called dookie rope. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that either. Yep. Is this a Zabrowski joke? No, no, it is not. It is in the book. It's called. They call them Dookie ropes. All right. Well, I, like I, I laughed quite a bit when I when I and then I looked up how to purchase a Dookie rope for myself, and they are still for purchase. But the problem is, I have so much back and chest hair that chains always get caught in them. <laughs> the Polish problem. My sister is the best gift giver I've ever met of any person. It's Jackie Zabrowski. She shops all year thinking about her family and friends and puts little things aside for their birthdays and Christmases. I have no idea how she does it. I don't know how she do it, but guess what? She always wins Mother's Day, but not this year. I'm coming back. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? I'm taking the crown. All right, give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. I mean this. We have the Aura frame up in my home. We absolutely love it. I can put photos on it very, very easily through the app. It's fun to do. And the memories keep cycling and I get emotional. And we filled it with pictures of Carmi and Wendy. And that is not sad. That is celebratory. So you should try it. It's honestly a really good product. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code LEFT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Finding work-life balance can be tough, but Squarespace gives you the tools to reach your goals and have time to celebrate. Squarespace is the all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. With the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint, 
you can select from curated layout and styling options to create a personalized website optimized for every device. Get your website discovered fast with integrated, optimized SEO tools. Plus, make checkout easy for customers with easy-to-use payment tools. And with Squarespace AI, you can explain what your site is about, choose your tone, enter what you need, and get auto-generated text. And that helps you save time. I know I'm sitting on about two literal wheelbarrows filled with horse pics. Now, part of the issue has been is a lot of these pictures are getting stopped at customs because some of them do depict various world leaders in horse-like circumstances that seems to be pinging a lot of these custom agents' accounts. Now, so what I've done to do is like, so while I'm trying to work on hand smuggling these horse pics over various country borders, I then also have time because Squarespace is doing all the other ad work for me to go and work on my killdozer at home. So thank you, Squarespace, for allowing me to diversify in the best way possible for this country. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch. Go to squarespace.com slash left to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on a couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Well, while Monster Rap is obviously a joke song, that same dude, Layla Goodman, put out some legitimately good tracks as well. He was also a drug dealer and helped to finance Easy and Dre's early pursuits. Okay. And that is when O'Shea Jackson, a.k.a. Ice Cube, came into the mix. Now, despite Cube being one of the most intense rappers in history, and possibly my personal favorite, mm-hmm. there's not an ounce of serious criminality in Ice Cube. Never has been. Ice Cube was an artist, writing about what he saw going on around him. But ironically, even though these guys popularized the gangster lifestyle with their music, their early work was largely anti-gang. Hmm. It was a little bit like the Burger King Kids Club. It was all <laughs> right. just like gangs of chumps. Yes. Right, right. Well, obviously, so, but they weren't being, uh, how successful were they? With this more innocent rap. Not. Not successful. No. Okay, so. Definitely not. No. The market wasn't there. At the time, they kind of had to work clean because they were working out of roller skate rinks and all these, like, kid clubs. Because they, they were saying, like, the, how, like, the roller skate rink was kind of, like, the first way that kids could go and, like, hang out with a group of their peers. Right. Without, like, there being booze and drugs and shit. So they would have to be kind of innocent. But they said that shit would get wild. They were, like, all of a sudden, 2,000 kids would show up and, like, one owner of a roller skate rink like told dr dre like you better understand that if you don't rock this fucking joint tonight <laughs> these children are gonna rip this place apart and he, like he'd be like okay and like, all of a sudden it's a mob of kids like staring at him being like make us dance or wow. we'll kill everyone that is the toughest crowd i could ever imagine for sure. Well, things didn't really change until Tracy Morrow, a.k.a. Ice-T, now known more for playing Detective Finn Tutuola on Law & Order SVU, yes. released a song called Six in the Morning. Now I just can't stop thinking of Dr. Dre just in front of Children of the Corn as they <laughs> stare at him with white eyes, and he's just like, monster rap. Well, do monster rap again. I've got it. <laughs> like, what a nightmare. Oh, for for grown men to have to entertain children is I'm a I'm motherfucking Dracula. You know I smoke a lot 
lot of crackula. You better take two steps backula, or I'll smackula. And everyone's like, oh, shit. There it is. Uh, the song Six in the Morning was so named because six in the morning was the time that big fucking tanks driven by LAPD officers would routinely break down the doors of houses suspected to be drug dens. Mm. Now, six in the Morning wasn't the first gangster rap song. That honor went to Schooly D. But it was the one people paid attention to, particularly in Los Angeles. Mm. And that's the thing to remember. Even though these guys weren't living the lifestyle completely, it was still a part of their everyday life. Right. They may not have been selling, but they could still very easily get killed in the crossfire. Yeah, or be uh, you know um, sprinkled with with drugs and, and put under arrest anyway, and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, because the L- LAPD had a unit at this time. They called it the Crash Unit, uh, and it was an anti-gang uh-huh. unit. And the officers freely admitted to carrying around spare guns and drugs, right? Uh, because they said, "Well, they're doing it anyway. Just because we can't find it on them doesn't mean they're not guilty." Yeah, great, great police work. Really good <laughs> police work. Yeah. See, the younger folks out there may not remember the Crip Blood Wars of the 90s as well as we do, even though we just know it through rap music. And again, Minnesota. You're telling me that that is a water fountain? I highly doubt it. Also, back in the day, you'd have to take for father. I remember, you know, if you had a father... You get five seventy five from him and go down to the corner store and get him out get him a pack of Marlboro Lights because it was okay to do when you were eight years old and it was nineteen ninety two. Well, to really like to give you perspective on this for like people who weren't alive or don't remember it, uh, I was a kid in Rochester, Texas, mm. a town of less than four hundred people, middle of fucking nowhere. I was ten years old and I knew about the Bloods and the Crips. Right. You know, I knew all about this war. This shit was absolutely everywhere. They pumped it up. Yep. As well. The the media took a hold of it because it was a really simple narrative to say to to warn about the inner cities, but both to bring attention to it, also to kind of in a sideways way say this is why uh it's okay for for us to neglect them and for them to have no for them to have no resources because it's like essentially like a war torn country that we would be occupying we would have yeah. to like go and and really deal with the changing the infrastructure of these cities and they didn't mm-hmm. want to so no, they, that- instead they use the sensationalist stories about all these rival gangs where it's like then you realize oh this shit was happening everywhere not just in LA like it happened right. in New York and it was happening in Atlanta it happened in fucking Houston it happened all those places but they used LA as the example yeah, you had the situation where it was politicized. So you had the war on drugs, the 93 crime bill, all that super predator nonsense, the three strikes and you're out. And then you also had the television news being like, this is great ratings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you just had this two prong effect. And then you had the music for the young kids. I didn't realize it was I didn't realize how real it was. Yeah. You know, you watch it on TV and all of our friends went through phases wearing like whatever, you know. Um, but you didn't you didn't um, quite comprehend the actual devastation. You didn't take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing is that, you know, we as as white fellas, like we were buying the majority of gangster rap. Yeah. Like that's that was the majority of their sales were white people, specifically like suburban kids. And sadly, I, I didn't realize that monster rap was what I wanted the whole time. Everyone <laughs> wanted to live vicariously through these individuals and they don't want to hear about monster rap. They want to hear about their their um, their vision of the inner city they want to feel cool right you know and yeah. this shit made you feel so cool well back then the crips whose gang color was blue were at war with the bloods who were red 
They had chapters all over the country, but the fighting was the worst where the whole thing began, in south-central L.A. and the adjacent city of Compton. Mm. And this war actually had a slow build, because before the 80s, urban street gangs were more like a protection thing, as in the cops aren't going to come and help us, so we've got to help ourselves. I mean, it definitely resulted in some crime, as most gang activity does, but it wasn't an epidemic. Then crack came along, and Mm. everything changed. After crack, bloody turf wars became the norm, and murder became a part of everyday life. Mm. And besides that, families were destroyed by both addiction and overly harsh sentencing for possession of crack specifically. There's also a a lot of conjecture about whether or not the crack problem was just so bad, or if it was just another scapegoat story that they put on these communities. I mean, a part of it is a what do we know now? The, The conspiracy theories that we know to be true is the fact that the CIA helped well they turned a blind eye towards uh, crack sales in uh, in certain parts of the country specifically in LA if you look at the story of Freeway Rick and you see his whole shit about how like they were using that drug money to buy arms to sell to Iran to give money to the fucking Contras the whole Iran Contra shit so it's like there's a lot of ways the story can be framed about what what crack did yep. but um, one thing about it is that it was easy to sell which is why they did it, because it was it was easier to measure than cocaine, because cocaine would literally like fall off the table if you sneezed. <laughs> That's true. And five times more sentence. So you, mm-hmm. everyone got theirs here. Yeah. And it's and crack is highly addictive. You can become instantly addicted to crack. Uh, it's the perfect drug. You know, as far as like selling goes. Sure. Uh, And even if you didn't want to be a part of the drug trade in these neighborhoods, a lot of these kids growing up, they didn't really have a choice. I mean, if one or both of your parents are locked up, I mean, how else are you going to survive? Especially you have to take care of like younger brothers or sisters uh, or other members of the family. Sure. Like just for an example of like how violent this really was. There were 85 murders in Compton in 1987, a town with a population of only about 93,000. Okay. To put that into perspective, if New York City had that same murder rate, we'd be looking at 7200 bodies. Three times what we were at our very worst wow. in 1990. So this is going the epidemic is in full swing here. Yeah. But at the same time, Compton at night was different than Compton during the day. Right. Like what a lot of people said, like like Compton during the day looked like a family neighborhood. Shit would kind of change as the nighttime came. So it was an interesting kind of juxtaposition. In 1949, George Bush Sr. and his wife, young, nubile Barbara Bush, <laughs> uh-huh. lived in Compton uh, in order to, what were they doing, Marcus? Uh, I think, what were they, he was working for an oil company. Yeah, he was working for an oil company. It used to be like a fancy neighborhood. Well, when things fell apart, it's in that environment that Dre, Cube, Easy, and a couple of other guys named MC Ren and DJ Yella mm. started a group called NWA in order to talk about all this shit in a real, meaningful way that people could relate to. Right. See, before this, musicians and gangs were totally separate. Like, for example, one story told in Original Gangsters had a gang actually calling a timeout during a backyard brawl so the DJ could go home. And both sides stopped fighting, and they helped him load his DJ equipment into his car together. And then as soon as he was gone, boom, fights back on. Just cut to the DJ. Just guys, 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 guys. guys. Just one. These records are very fragile. I understand there's a lot of beef being slung around, but can we take a pause in the Taco Bell moment here and let me get my stuff? And then everyone goes like, hold up, hold up, because it was in the street rules that you don't fuck with the DJ. Yeah. And so it's so much fun. 
That's fun. That's a fun side story to it and a very sad story. Yes. Yeah, that's always so weird to me when they just stop and stare at each other. I mean, it's uh, it's it's cartoonish. It's like that cartoon with the cartoon dog and they chase each other around and then they clock out and they punch out and they're friends. <laughs> but uh, I don't think they were friends after they punched out here. But Yeah, but the they mus- were neighbors, though, right? The who? The dog and the... No, the the Crips and the Bloods. I mean, this oh. is a relatively small community. Yes. So they lived, like, by each other. Yeah, they were all right next to each other. It was all sectioned off. You know, but the musicians and the gangsters being separate, NWA changed all that. Mm. The DJs and rappers in Los Angeles, they weren't on the outside anymore. Now they were telling stories about what life was actually like on the ground where they lived. So Mm. when NWA released the single The Boys in the Hood in 1987, people took notice. And it also didn't hurt cred that Easy paid for the first pressing with the last of his drug money. Mm. Then, when their first album, Straight Outta Compton, hit, Ruthless became one of the most successful indie labels in history. Wow. Ruthless released platinum record after platinum record and kept adding people to their roster. One of these guys was a young kid out of Dallas named the DOC. Although the DOC was signed to Ruthless, he was managed by a relative newcomer to the scene, former Bobby Brown bodyguard, Suge Knight. You know what's scariest about Suge? Is how quiet he is. Yes. I think when a big man is quiet because he does the thing of like, maybe we can uh, talk about this situation in another room. Like he does that bit all the time with people and you're like, I prefer to do it here in the dining room, sir, (laughs) with everyone watching. (laughs) And also like, because Kissel, like Kissel's a big man, but Kissel's a loud big man. Yeah. Which means you see him coming and that technically makes you like... Less dangerous because you can get away if you decide to do your fucking tornado fist swing to right. take out a room because that's your goon squad move. It's the streets of rage. That's the streets of rage move. Uh, and it's, it's final fight. Your final th- fight. Final and that's fight. a great move. Yeah, and that guy was the mayor. Was he really? <laughs> Look at that. You know, so these guys, I mean, they were real entrepreneurs, though. Yes. Right? Like, the fact that, how many people did Easy yeah. employ at this point, like, in his early 20s? Well, Easy also got well, help from Jerry Heller. Okay. You know, but still, yes. I mean, these guys were entrepreneurs, absolutely. And Easy E, though, at the time, it's like, we'll find out. Easy <laughs> took care of himself more than anybody else, and he got the majority of the money, which kind of was, like, one of the first th- things that fucked up all of their relationships, because Easy, like, they all signed these old, like, Temptations deals, like from like the 1950s, where they signed away all their rights and nobody made any fucking money. Mm. But Easy hooked up with fucking Jerry Heller early and figured out how to get like he gets the 75 percent chunk. Wait, wait, are you telling me like money problems affected friendships? Yes. <laughs> are you telling me that now? I've heard it all. Well, back to Shug. Shug, so named because his childhood nickname was Sugar Bear, was... <laughs> that's, a nice, that's a nice way to put demonstrative monster. Can't get enough of that sugar, Chris. Shug <laughs> was another guy who grew up in Compton but wasn't involved in any gang activity. Mm. He was a star defensive end, good enough to play two games for the Rams right. as a scab during the player strike. Ah, But this is also telling to the type of person Shug is. The reason why he stopped being a fucking uh, L.A. Ram was because he skipped training camp in order to go stalk his ex-girlfriend. He, like, he let his weird rage let him lose his whole fucking career that he spent his whole life trying to get. Hmm. 
Now, if you couldn't tell from his work history, Suge Knight was and is a fucking huge, intimidating dude. Six foot, two inches tall, going about 260 pounds. I like him. I like you, Suge. I've (laughs) never, I've always supported you. He's the Mike Myers of rap producers. Yes. (laughs) Just constantly lurking behind a tree, and you feel his presence, but you never see him. (laughs) Suge regularly used his size to his advantage throughout his career with one of the most famous incidents happening right at the beginning. In 1989, Suge started a music publishing company that helped to secure royalties for artists. One of his first clients was Mario Johnson, a.k.a. Chocolate, who worked out of Texas. Chocolate was the one who actually wrote Ice Ice Baby, performed by Rob Van Winkle, a.k.a. Vanilla Ice. Oh, yes, Vanilla Ice. I remember him. (laughs) When when the name broke, Rob Van Winkle, that really hurt. I was like, that's the name? Oh, man. Also, I mean, Vanilla Ice now more famously from his new home improvement show that he has. And I am happy that he made it through that really dark depression. He was just entertaining us uh, like anybody else. He tried to fuck over everyone that he could as oh, did he? hard as he could as often as he could no <laughs> yeah well no, vanilla ice of the vanilla ice project <laughs> no vanilla ice when he made his heavy metal album what was it called right. oh i remember that hard to swallow <laughs> was it called hard to swallow yes that's unfortunate that's yeah. an unfortunate name okay yeah, so Shug was representing Chocolate, uh, and Chocolate said, hey, I actually wrote Ice Ice Baby. I've got the handwritten lyrics right here, but Vanilla Ice is like, no, I wrote the whole album when I was 16. I don't want to make a weight joke about Shug again, Mr. Knight. I have nothing to say bad about you, but Chocolate and Vanilla, did he name them? <laughs> Because yes. I do have a... Also, yes. I do feel like, yes, Vanilla also stole the name from Chocolate. He's like, okay, Ice Ice Baby by Chocolate. That's not a good name for me at all, son. No, no. What, what do I look... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Looks into the mirror. I see. <laughs> Pasty Ice. No, no. What if we go Vanilla? Okay. Ah, yes, yes. So Vanilla Ice was claiming all the credit. He was keeping all of the royalties, Mm. and he wasn't paying up at all, which isn't surprising considering how he also claimed he owed no royalties to Queen for using the bass line from Under Pressure because his bass line had one extra note. Yes. You remember that? No, no, Uh, no, 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 yeah, no, man. You see, it's a, that, their song is dun, 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 and my song is Dun 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 dun. See, it's totally different, man. Totally different. <laughs> He'd said that with a straight face during a television interview. That was behind the music. They were talking. That was a great series by on VH1. Behind the music was so awesome before we were saturated with all this stuff we get now, but. So the story goes that Suge Knight and a couple of dudes broke into Vanilla Ice's hotel room, took him out to the balcony, and dangled him over the edge by his ankles until Vanilla agreed to pay up. But according to Vanilla Ice, that's not how it happened. Suge only roughed up his security guards and threatened to throw Vanilla Ice off a (laughs) 15-story balcony. That's it. He didn't actually do it. Oh. Oh. He just kind of threatened to do it, and he isolated him at a yeah. restaurant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that was the truth. Is that Vanilla Ice would be sitting there eating whatever he fucking eats, which I imagine is just like a prime rib and orange soda. Like, you know, like whatever Vanilla he was, Ice he was at- I think that's called a Vanilla Ice. Yeah, that sounds good, actually. And so he'd sit... Like eating dinner, and he said, Suge showed up, and he was like, Because Vanilla Ice also had a bunch of bodyguards. And he was like, I was sitting there with my bodyguards, and then they disappeared. 
And then I looked up, and Suge was there with a whole replacement of other bodyguards. And I'd say, I don't know if I owe you this money, Suge. And he's like, we'll see. And then he found him again the next day where he said he literally watched. He's sitting there with his security. Because now he's scared. He knows Suge is coming for him. So he's sitting at the table. His security guard is like in front of him. He sees a hand on, just on his security guard's shoulder. The security guard looks up because all of Suge, including himself and his people, are all bigger than the entire security team for Vanilla oh, Ice. Yeah. And so so they just all like, got right. well, Mr. Ice, we will be excused. It seems the guests you've been waiting for has arrived. And Shook is like, you know, I heard that they got um, a pretty marvelous ice cream bar out on the balcony. If you want to come outside for dessert. And he's like, I love dessert. <laughs> Horrifying. So Vanilla Ice paid to the tune of $4 million. Wow. Well, he gave chocolate points, and those points on Ice Ice Baby eventually ended up being worth $4 million. Good, he deserves it. He wrote the damn thing. He absolutely he deserved it. And uh, Suge gained a reputation as a guy who got shit done no matter what, which okay. made him perfectly suited to be a manager in the music business. All right. We need a fucking Suge, man. I want I one. don't uh, know if we now... We, first of all, not, we need a manager that isn't blind, because I heard Suge <laughs> Knight was blind according to his last appearance uh, in court. But. What if we got Suge? He's in prison for murder. Yeah. That's gonna... <laughs> so he's, he's fucking on the available. Well. So Suge Knight snatched up the DOC, got him signed to Ruthless Records, and pretty soon Suge found himself firmly embedded in the Ruthless Records crew right around the time that the relationship between Dr. Dre and Easy e started to sour. Mm. Suge had been paying attention during his time at Ruthless and figured he had at least a working knowledge of how to start a label. All he needed was a star, and he found a willing partnership, at least at first, in Dr. Dre. Okay. So in order to get out of his contract, Dre set up his old friend Easy E. Dre is a controversial figure. Yes. Dre is a Dr. Dre is a dude that I mean like he has a really bad past with domestic assault. He is uh he's rough with women. He's bad uh, at business. His big thing with business which is gets you into a lot of fucking trouble, which is he all he wanted to do was pay attention to the music and but and so he didn't want to deal with business at all. So when he met Suge, he was so excited to meet somebody that would do whatever it takes no matter what and I didn't have to quote unquote hear about it. But then all all of a sudden, immediately, Dre is being involved directly in these strong arm tactics, and Dre is kind of like getting into it. Yeah. This is still just the same guy who wore that sequence outfit with the stethoscope and things like that. He's been yes. playing a character right. all this time. Uh, and But Dre definitely wised up after uh, Death Row. Yes. Uh, I mean, he had Aftermath Records, which is one of the most successful hip-hop labels of all time. And don't forget, he sold beats to Apple for $4 billion. $4 billion. He did good. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. So Dre called Easy and said it was time for them to meet up and hash out all these arguments they've been having about money. Easy agreed, but when Easy showed up at the address, a studio called Galaxy, it was Suge Knight waiting, flanked by three dudes with lead pipes, not Dr. Dre. Mm. Suge and his henchmen led Easy E to a soundproof room, sat him down, and brought up a rumor Suge had heard that Easy was planning to take him out. And there is actually some truth to this one. Again and again, throughout Suge's career, more people than just Easy were scared enough by what Suge Knight was capable of to kind of toy around with the idea of 
about if we just killed him? I'll tell you, man. If you are not a licensed plumber and you have a lead pipe, that's scary. <laughs> that's very scary. Because like first of all, how'd you scary. get it? Yeah, how'd you get it? How you getting a lead pipe? Right. Because I don't know where you just loose find a lead pipe. No also, idea. are you not afraid of the poisoning? Think about because it. Because... It can make you very sick. It can. And the, none of these guys are thinking about their retirement. That's <laughs> yeah. one thing I will say about Gangster Rap is that no one's thinking about a 401k. No one's talking about health insurance. And I think they should have. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, lead pipe. I just immediately think of my knees just shattering. Yeah. Yeah. That, and it seems pretty brutal. Yeah, it's immediately terrifying. Yeah. That's the effect of it. That's why you. That's why you have one. So largely, what you hope is, I'd like to think with a lot of these guys is you do this so that you don't have to use them. You just be really scary, so somebody will do what you say without having to murder them. Mm. Well, whether Easy actually planned to kill Suge Knight or not, it was more of just it was a, a brainstorming mean, idea. Uh, Easy wanted to kill uh, Dre. Suge Knight. Oh, he wanted to kill Suge Knight. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Suge was the problem. Yeah. Because Suge was the one with all... Suge grew up with a group called the MLBs, or like the... the and the Piru fucking... The, the, I believe that they were... Bloods? No, the Pyru. Where the Pyru is just another word for blood. It's the mm. same. Blood yeah. just blood just won the brand war. Ah, they're just different. Yeah, but like the Pyru and all that kind of shit. They all have a lot of different names. There's a lot, there's many splinter groups uh, in uh, the gang life. It's very there's a lot of different affiliations and shit. So like Suge actually had people, and Easy E like knew that and got very scared. And so if you if you want to, he's the dangerous one. Right. You got to get rid of Suge to get rid of the problem. Okay. Well, either way, Easy E told. Shug Suge to fuck off. So when Suge's opening gambit didn't work, Suge showed Easy either a slip of paper with his mother's address written on it or a picture of her house, depending on who's telling the story. And understandably, Easy immediately gave in and signed away Dre and two other artists on the spot because Suge was just like, you want us to go pay her a visit? Yeah, because he used his mom's address as the original return label on all the original straight out of Compton records for the uh, record company. So they knew exactly where to find her. But then there's a whole side story here that I that we can never cover, which is the EZE hiring the fucking Mossad to guard <laughs> himself against Suge. There's like a whole like six month saga of EZE with these Israeli assassins and Suge's people like having little mini wars. Crazy. Yeah, that's why you got to read original gangsters because yeah. it's full of these amazing side stories, you know, and you know the full story of Easy E, which is you know just an absolutely tragic one. And it sounds like a story of a great, amazing mother as well, just being there taking. What she got all these all this mail from death row and stuff. <laughs> She'd be like, "Here you go, honey. We got a lot of mail today. Like, What's happening? Someone sent panties." panties from the shorty <laughs> I have a whole pile of pa shorties panties tell, tell, tell that short woman whoever she is I hope her vagina isn't cold <laughs> so now Suge Knight he had Dr. Dre he had the DOC and I believe Lady of Rage okay. uh, and so he had a solid stable of talent now all he needed was the money that was procured from an L.A. drug dealer named Michael Harris, a.k.a. Harry O. He was doing 28 years in prison for trafficking and attempted murder, but still had business dealings in the entertainment world, even producing a Broadway play before going to jail. Oh, all right. Yeah, it was uh, Denzel Washington's uh, Broadway debut. It was called really? Checkmates. No kidding. I mean, the... A lot of rap at the time was funded from drug money, but this was like Suge really getting in bed. 
with criminals in order to get his enterprise going because this fucker was like the real deal and he's sitting on death row and he's still and he still fucked him over yeah <laughs> i remember that though when steven sondheim was involved in the drug business as well yeah it happened to a lot of people so harry o put up 1.5 million dollars for a 50 50 partnership in death row records fronting the capital for what is arguably one of the most successful and well-respected hip-hop labels of all time, if not one of the most short-lived. And controversial. Very controversial. Now, besides just showing up with Dre, Death Row also took a chance on a 19-year-old kid named Calvin Broadus, Uh a.k.a. Snoop Doggy Dogg, as he was known at that time. In short order, Death Row released The Chronic and Doggy Style, two of the best rap albums ever released. 19. Smoke weed every day. <laughs> Just, that was later. That was like two albums later. Nah, man. He's still 19 years old. I still can't wrap my head around it. Like, he was so young, and, like, he just made that. Like, Doggy Style is just so incredible. And it holds up. Like, it's still one of the best ever. Oh, yeah. I, I've been listening to those uh, those albums recently, like, over the last few days, and they're so good. And, you know, and that's and also, like, Dr. Dre, like, created a new style of production for those albums. He created G-Funk, mm. uh, which was pretty much just, yeah, using funk. He used the, uh, the funky worm uh, oh. from, like, a, it's like from an Ohio player song. What was the name of the, there was a specific name. I thought the funky worm was also the name for the sound that Dre created. The, the, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's the funky worm. Yeah, the, man. That is a funky worm. (laughs) My God, I'll never forget. You know what's also fun? A theremin. Germany. That's what I would have put in. We went to Germany when I was in seventh grade, and they were playing Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, the video where they were all playing beach volleyball, and for some reason the girls didn't have any tops on. But in America they blurred it, but in Germany they didn't. And that was that was fun. I think that was the uh, video for Nothing But a G Thing. If Could I, be. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, that that was the one that they did together that was kind of made Snoop a bit of a breakout hit. And yeah. uh, Snoop Doggy Dog Doggy Style, was I, I think, still holds the record for uh, fastest-selling debut album. Well, because I'll- he was already a star before uh, the album even came out. Yeah, wow. Yeah, dude. I'd say, and that's why our boys fought in the war. Absolutely. <laughs> so we could see them titties jump bumping up and down while they're playing volleyball. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate our boys. Memorial Day wasn't that long ago. Absolutely. <laughs> I just want to say thank you, thank you for your service. Absolutely. And fairly good at volleyball, too. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. In the same year that saw the release of Doggy Style, also saw the founding of the Yin to Death Rose Yang. That was the year that Sean Combs, mm. a.k.a. Puff Daddy, founded Bad Boy Records here in New York City. New York! There it is. It's closer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Cheesecake. Uh, Yes, Cheesecake. Coney Island, man. (laughs) Forever. When he made the the band, go get him Junior's Cheesecake. I'm West Coast now, though, so I can't really represent as hard. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. We must be represented in the East Coast by... uh, a guy from Wisconsin and a guy from Texas. I like Biggie. Yep. <laughs> uh, Puffy is, as Ben Westhoff points out, a complicated character. Even though he eventually became cuddly enough to co-host on Regis and Kathy Lee, oh. he grew up the son of a Harlem drug kingpin named Frank Lucas. However, Puffy wasn't into the criminal life himself. He was a music guy, most notably working as a backup dancer for Heavy D and the Boys in the 80s. Oh, they were great. Yeah. But he was still an organizer from a young age, but even his early work actually resulted in tragedy. Hmm. 
1991, Puffy organized a charity basketball game at Cooney featuring Heavy D, Run DMC, and Boys to Men as the stars, among others. They even had a guy from Belle Biv DeVoe. Really? And they were playing basketball? Yeah, no charity ki- basketball game. No kidding. So the venue held 2,700 people, but when the day of the event came, 5,000 showed up. Boys to Men are there. Yeah. Yeah. In the ensuing that chaos. That was my first record. I'm Boys sorry. to Men, it this- was great. Boys to Men, really? Boys to Men was great. That was my first album I ever purchased, Boys to Men, because I yeah. like seductive songs. For some reason, as a little boy, my favorite songs were the Lady in Red and uh, <laughs> with the uh, Down on Bended Knee, like yes. that song quite a bit. Oh, of like course. Like soft R&B hits. I would listen to a lot of that while I'm splashing my body uh, with jupe right before class. Yeah. Where, oh, where man, jupe. Jupe, <laughs> great takes cologne. Me back, man. Great cologne. So in the ensuing chaos that echoed tragedies like the Great Cincinnati Who Disaster, which resulted in the deaths of 11 people, Mm. nine died at Puffy's event and 29 were injured. Oh, man. Regardless, Puffy stayed in the music industry and got a job at Uptown Records, but was fired for being difficult and for pushing a certain gangster rap artist a little too hard, which gangster rap wasn't Uptown's bag, so they gave him the boot. Mm. But that rapper was a new artist from Bedsty, Brooklyn, named Christopher Wallace, soon to be known as Biggie Smalls, yes. then soon to be known after a lawsuit as the Notorious B.I.G. All right, the introduction. Now, Biggie was yet another guy who had gotten into a little trouble growing up, getting arrested for selling drugs in North Carolina after his mom had thrown him out, but by the time Biggie Smalls was 18, he had mostly put all that shit behind him. Hmm. Like, he actually grew up, like, relatively comfortable with a very loving mother, far from the one-room shack with no food that he'd later rap about in the Rags to Riches anthem, Juicy. Now, according to his mother, Biggie Smalls was just his son Christopher's alter ego, but he was damn good at playing it. Yeah. She at one point, I was watching an interview with her where she was like, I don't know if you can tell by looking at Christopher, but we never really didn't have food in the house. <laughs> that is, oh, that's hilarious. She's like the sweetest yeah. Caribbean woman in the world. Yeah. Yeah, Valletta, Valletta Wallace. Uh, yeah, her, her interviews are, are fantastic. She really is oh. just a sweet, sweet woman, and she did not deserve any of the shit that she had to put up with. Yeah. So Puffy started Big Boy, released Biggie's debut album, Ready to Die, and pretty soon Death Row Records had very real competition in the gangster rap market. But that's not to say that these two labels were the only ones putting out quality hip-hop at the time. Every year of the early 90s saw a slew of landmark hip-hop albums. They call it the golden age of hip-hop. In 1994 alone, we got classic albums from Nas, Outkast, Warren G, Redman, Method Man, Spice One, The Beastie Boys, and my personal favorite from that year, Grave Diggers. Ooh. Very on brand, Marcus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's very, really very good. On brand. It's I know, awesome. but it's also, it's got grave diggers in the title of it, which <laughs> right. is what you like. That it, is a dream profession of yours. It so speaks that makes sense. to me. Yes, and naturally. Yeah. <laughs> but out of all these artists, the one that was arguably getting the most respect was Tupac Shakur. Now, Tupac was, to say the least, a complicated character, and that's putting it nicely. He is very, uh, very complicated. He did a lot of bad shit, but then he did a lot of good shit. Yeah. In conjunction with Suge Knight, nobody did more to stoke the East Coast, West Coast fires more than Tupac, even though he was the first to die. Mm. And just like John Lennon, Tupac was concurrently a great artist and, at times, a fucking terrible person. Right. 
Now, in contrast to Biggie, who lived most of his childhood in the same Bed-Stuy brownstone with his stable-loving mother, Tupac's formative years were dirt-poor, nomadic, and filled with hardship. Mm. Tupac's mother, Afini, was a leader in the Black Panther Party in the 60s from the Bronx. His mom was a fucking badass. The way it started, her story, she was like deeply, deeply involved with the Black Panthers in in a hardcore way, like planning bombings and shit. Yeah, she got pregnant with Tupac while she was out on bail from conspiracy charges stemming Mm. from a supposed plot to blow up department stores and police stations. Mm. But then remember, there's BS on all sides. Again, with every one of these stories... In terms of because the Black Panther Party was named by J. Edgar Hoover as the biggest threat to American society in the 50s, which it, it wasn't because also remember at the same time our government was in the middle of the MK Ultra program and Operation Paperclip, <laughs> like all of that shit where it's like you are you good work, good, good way to throw the spotlight onto other bullshit. Right. No, it was significant, though. The Black Panther Party is the reason why they have such strict gun laws in in California. Governor Reagan, despite his Republican credentials, as soon as they got the guns, they're like, the wrong people have them. We better take them away. But right after Afini got pregnant with Tupac, her bail was revoked, and she spent most of the pregnancy in jail Mm. and was released only a month before Tupac was born. And after that, Tupac's godmother was found guilty of murdering a New Jersey state trooper but broke out of prison and fled to Cuba before her sentencing. Wow. And Afini ended up marrying that woman's brother, Matulu Shakur, and they lived happily as a family until 1981 when Matulu was sent away for Participating in the attempted armed robbery of an armored car that resulted in the deaths of two cops and a security guard. Okay. And after that, the family moved to Baltimore. And then Afini turned to crack, and Tupac's life fell apart. Mm-hmm. But eventually, though, Tupac found solace in poetry and theater and attended the Baltimore School of Arts, which Afini said actually saved his life. Nice. Yeah, I will say that the Nick Broomfield documentary Biggie and Tupac has Ugh. been largely torn apart. It's like completely bunked. And it's also awful. fucking Nick Broomfield is an asshole. I hate like, what, what happened? What did he so, say in there? I, I hate Nick. He's the same guy that did the Bogus Curtain Courtney uh, oh, documentary. He yeah. did those two Eileen Wernos documentaries. He's exploitative. He's pushy. Well, he, he lies. He, he just he, omits things that don't fit his narrative all the time. Exactly. He's just a less charming Louis Thoreau. Like, that's his biggest crime for me is that he tries to do the Louis Thoreau fucking model, but he can't do it. Right. Um, but he did have an interview with uh, Tupac's drama teacher at the Baltimore School of the Arts. And what I do like about is seeing the other side of, like, how Tupac was a fucking theater kid at that time. And, like, the drama teacher just being like... Pac's smile could light up the Eiffel Tower. No one, could, no one had a frown when Tupac was around with his lovely dancing and his beautiful singing and his wonderful poems. That's so funny. Yeah. But near the end of high school, the Shakur family moved to California, and Tupac hooked, hooked up with his stepbrother Maurice, later known as Mo Prem, in Oakland. And there, Tupac dabbled in the gang lifestyle, briefly selling drugs, but he never really got a taste for it. And in fact, like, you know, Tupac uh, and uh, Mo Prem, like they actually came up with like kind of a drug, like an ethics code for drug dealers. That's what Thug Life was all about. Oh right, yeah, Thug Life, which actually I didn't know. Yeah, that Thug Life was about a truce. 
between all the gangs. And it was about setting up rules so that people don't get caught in crossfires anymore. And they they wanted to qu- create a quote unquote safe space for squares. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And they wanted to make sure that, you know, you, they didn't sell it to the wrong people because Tupac could see in his mother. It's like this crack shit like destroys lives. Right. So let's come on, guys. Let's be he ethical about this. Yeah. He lived it. <laughs> let's, they can't even do it to the fucking pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> right. And they managed to do it to these crack dealers for about three years. Well, instead of going going all in on the drug game, Tupac went all in on his music career and ended up working as a roadie for Digital Underground, fronted by the Humpty Hump, the guy with the big fake nose. Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, we know them. And eventually, Tupac worked his way up to backup dancer, then finally performer. And Tupac's very first recorded verse was on what else Uh-oh. but the track Same Song, uh-huh. famously featured... And the Digital Underground's cameo Mm -hmm. and Dan Aykroyd's directorial masterpiece, (laughs) Nothing But Trouble. (laughs) So it was like he was looking to start a rap career and a dance career, but when he went looking for it, all that he found. (laughs) Oh, man. Nothing nothing but trouble? (laughs) Was nothing but trouble? Nothing but trouble? Wow. That is unbelievable. <laughs> now, although Tupac's verse isn't featured in the truncated movie version of the song, you can actually see yep. Tupac being convincingly impressed by the organ playing of the judge, played by Dan Aykroyd. He does. Naturally. <laughs> he, does, he does do good surprise dice. Yeah. He does the, oh. Wow. Like. And the music video that Marcus sent us is superb because Dan Aykroyd, he is in that thing. Oh, yeah. For some bonus nothing <laughs> yep. but trouble material. Check out the video for same oh, song, which God. is set at a drive-in screening of Nothing But Trouble and features cameos from Dr. Dre and Eazy-E alongside Dan Aykroyd, who inexplicably <laughs> plays a member of N.W.A. Yeah. I'm not exaggerating. No, I'm you not have lying. to. I'm telling you, you have got to go, just YouTube it. Pause the episode. Watch that video. It's one of the best things I've ever seen. It's him dresses Eazy-E. Which is controversial. And then that whole thing where they're all dressed as stereotypical Asian. Yes, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of interesting scenes in uh, that. He's not in dressed there. as Easy E because Easy E is standing right next to he's him. He's just dressed. <laughs> Man, Dan Aykroyd. He's just dressed in like, because, you know, NWA kind of had like a bit of a uniform. Like they did the whole like black and white thing. Uh, and then later on in the <sighs> song, because the, so the chorus, the hook of the song is whole wide world, same song. Uh, and so everybody, they're going all around the world. Uh, you you know, Tupac, like his verse is done, like African dress. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, they do the uh, aforementioned uh, rice paddy hats. Yeah. Uh, and then they show Dan Aykroyd, who's dressed as a bagpipe player. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, yes. he Which just I guess is his. He had, the, that's his, his world dance. contribution. Dan Aykroyd had power for one year, and he could do whatever he wanted with Everyone it. Everyone wanted, and that's what wanted. happened. That's God. how you spend it. He loved music. I will say, Dan Aykroyd loved music, and he liked being on the forefront of music because that's what the whole Blues Brothers thing was. Is that he was trying to bring blues back, and then like John yeah. Belushi and him like shared like really edgy tastes, where John Belushi was really into punk music and all that shit. So this was Dan Aykroyd being like, "I can hip hop as well." You should have seen me dancing back as Elwood Blues in my old Blues Brothers days. And here you can just imagine the, the faces God. of Easy E and Dre. Honestly, staring I wish at he them. would just. He's got to direct to nothing but trouble, too, at this point. I wish that he would. Still his only movie. He better. Which, by the way, we've caused the Rotten Tomatoes uh, rating to go down. down. Yeah. Uh, the point was to push it, and then we had yes, more attention brought yeah. to it. And then I guess democracy does work. Um, it's at 5% now. 
<laughs> it started at eight percent before yeah. we start talking about it. Now it's now it's gone down. So mission. we are sorry, Dan. Yes, unaccomplished mission. We tried. <laughs> so based on the strength of Tupac's verse in same song, and that song, by the way, is much better when it's stripped of the nothing but trouble context. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tupac. It's great though. It's, it's, so good. it's a great song. It is a great song. It's a great yeah. song. Yeah. It's very in Tupac's verse specifically, like ties the whole song together. It's fucking great. Uh, but after that, Tupac struck out as a solo artist and signed with Interscope Records in 1991. And with Tupac's first two records, he established himself as what Ben Westhoff classifies as more of a Bob Dylan type. Westhoff said that like. Tupac, he wasn't the most technically talented, but he could communicate experience and feeling like nobody else. And in Tupac's case, that experience was, as is described by Westhoff, being desperate, black, and poor. And while Dre and Snoop could be almost cartoonish at times, Tupac's music was brutally real. Mm. In other words, there was no, like, $20 sack pyramid or, like, W Balls sketches on Tupac's albums. Oh, (laughs) W Balls. I think that's the one that got my friend kicked out of the house. If you're licking, it's a W balls. W balls. W balls. W balls. Ah, that this oh, doggy style was hilarious. It was so funny. It was so funny. <laughs> no one under. I totally that that is like kind of lost on that whole thing. That kind of happened because of the blowback that they got from NWA when the when Straight Outta Compton first came. It was so fucking controversial, and it got it caused them so much trouble that they they went away from being political. Like that's where Ice Cube when he left. He went to go be political. NWA and all them, but kind of like became party boys. But then their shit also was also about being as disgusting as humanly possible. Yeah, mm. and Easy specifically. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they were going for it. Oh yeah. Well, but we may talk about Gimme That Nut later. <laughs> uh, it's oh, a song. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> dog meat. We will. You and I will. Well. <laughs> oh, of course we. Uh, of course we will. Too real. That's where the name came from, man. Straight uh, out of Compton, man. If it's a song sung by cartoon squirrels, <laughs> that could be kind of, if you think about the, the squirrels eat uh, nuts. Uh, oh, so it's about like a squirrel, like face fucking another no. squirrel? Oh, no, I went, uh, ooh. I did see a squirrel eating a graham cracker yesterday, and that's that was fun. adorable. That's, yeah. that's really fun. Was there cum on the graham cracker? Is well, I didn't want to know. There was not, Henry. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, back to Tupac. With the exception of the later hit, California Love, Mm. Tupac's music wasn't necessarily what you would call fun. Yeah. Tupac never would would never be good with the photographer after he took up a bunch of pictures and they said, okay, with this one, have fun with it. Like, I don't think (laughs) that would ever pan out. Yeah, Yeah. I suppose so. Yeah, it was fantastic. But, like, you know, like, you're not going to put on Dear Mama at a party, you know? But you're going to put on Gin and Juice. Right. Yeah, good good point. I put Dear Mama on at a party, I guess. But it would have to be like a funeral party for (laughs) my mother. Yeah, it's a little sad. Yeah. Although change works at parties. Yeah, yeah. For the introspective moment. Every party has to have one introspective moment. I suppose so. But maybe maybe we'll go with like uh, like barbecue. Yeah. I don't know if you're going to put on Mm. Tupac at a barbecue necessarily. Sure, sure. Yeah, but you can definitely put on, you know, nothing but a D thing. Sure. Everyone's going to have a great time. Absolutely. But even though Tupac was without a doubt the most poetic of them all, his rap sheet was also longer than anyone else's, Mm. at least among the stars. In 1992, Tupac drew a legally registered gun during a fan meet and greet following a convention. Think about this, though. Honestly, these people paid to meet you. It's like we're going to be doing some VIP meet and greets, and it's going to be really hard because you're like, hey, listen, 
Pac, thanks so much for having the meet and greet, but um, I paid $150. I'm going to want to see your gun. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine he was quite uncomfortable here. I mean, these are these aren't. Well, he was at uh, a music festival. Yeah, uh, he was. It was at an outside uh, music festival. Uh, he's like just going up, just talking to fans, signing autographs. Uh, a guy starts talking shit. Uh, confrontation happens. Uh. Tupac uh, pulled oh, out Oh, I thought his gun. it was like him just like showing him the gun. I thought it was like, no. and this is my special gun. And they're all like, oh, no. no okay, it's no, more no, serious. No, no, no. That was like Tupac drew his gun uh, looking to fire it, or at the very least, uh, looking to intimidate the guy. I understand uh, that's not the right thing to do, but why is this guy being a schmuck? Yeah, I mean, why are you going <sighs> to pull a gun? And also, Tupac, uh, as we'll see in another example later, Tupac uh, had got a Slippery fingers when it mm, came to guns. He, he wasn't very good at handling them because in this case, uh, he ended up dropping the gun. And when one of his uh, entourage picked it up, the gun went off and it shot a six-year-old boy in the head. Fucking killed him instantly. Mm. Uh, and no charges were filed, but Tupac did pay the family a half million dollar settlement. Very sad. And about eight months later, Tupac took a baseball bat to a guy named Chauncey Wynn during a concert in Michigan and did 10 days in jail. Then, a few months after that, he got into a gun battle with a couple of off-duty cops and shot one of them in the ass. Although that seems that story seems like everyone was at fault. Okay. Everyone was kind of acting like an asshole in that one. Then, he beat up a limo driver outside of a taping of In Living Color after the driver complained about Tupac smoking weed, although he was never charged for that crime. God, because it turned out it was just Jim Carrey playing a fun character. (laughs) (laughs) Thing was, though, Tupac hadn't always been like that. Tupac's friends said the change came not too long after the premiere of Juice, which was Tupac's acting debut, Nothing But Trouble Notwithstanding. Okay. In the movie, Tupac played a Harlem youth addicted to the thrill of killing following a botched robbery. And as soon as Tupac left the theater after seeing himself play the character Bishop on the big screen, mm. it said that he was never the same. I can see why, though. When you're a scared kid, right? He was a kid that had a really fucked up childhood. He was bounced back and forth. He had a lot of anger problems. He was desperate for attention. The music side of shit, right? Because what do you see just on the on the, the small level of work that we do or when you see friends like really become famous in the entertainment industry? A part of what happens is that you do believe up to a point where like money will solve all my problems. It's like what I need is money and fame and all this shit and I will be totally fulfilled. When sometimes when that shit becomes gets delivered, you realize, oh, Oh, I didn't actually get the void filled. Like I didn't become the strong man I always thought I would be. Like the thing that I was searching for, the the energy I'm trying to connect to that would make me feel whole. When he saw himself fill the loop of being a real criminal, I think that that made him it's somewhere deep inside be like that will make me feel real. That will make me feel whole. So that I walk, I now I can walk the walk and that everyone can be afraid of me like I used to be afraid of everybody else. And he got a lot of validation for that role as well. So perhaps in search of identity, that was a good way to go for him. Yeah. Mm. And now, after coming out of the movie, Tupac wanted to be Bishop. So he started hanging out with gang members whenever he could, and he started acting accordingly. Meanwhile, back over at Death Row, the gangs were starting to take over there as well. Both Blood and Crip gang members became regular fixtures at the Death Row offices, the latter acting more as Snoop Dogg hangers-on, while the former were there at the behest of Suge Knight. Mm. Like, they were hanging out somewhere, like, people would take the, like, the stairs 
to avoid the death row offices. Makes sense. Because All right. they would just hang out in the lobby. And so they would come in, like, lifting up furniture and shit. They were saying, like, all these people from, like, their, their, the people that do all of the, uh, the what's, the, what's the term? The people that do their... Uh, A&R? The, the people do their A&R and the people that did their distribution, the, the nerds from downstairs, would come up and they'd see, like, fucking gang, gangbangers taking the furniture out. And they'd be like, hey... You should put that furniture down. And then they would say shit being like, uh, if you don't make a problem, there won't be a problem. And so they'd just be like, we're just going to skip the lobby. <laughs> yeah, we just don't need sense. to come back here anymore. Sure, sure. And Dr. Dre was starting to get sick of this shit because Dre never wanted to be an actual gangster. All Dre ever wanted was to make money doing music. And, you know, relax every now and again in the lobby on a chair or a couch, <laughs> a, a color and water machine, something like that. Maybe a nice pot of plant. Yeah, and Dre, he'd actually, he'd played his part well. But when the actual gangster started showing, up, Dre wanted no part of it. But that's not to say he didn't contribute to the turn of the worm when it came to violence and hip-hop, even if it was indirectly. The turn of the worm. Yeah. The turn of the worm. Yeah, yeah when the worm turns. When the worm turns. Now, this is a sentence that's never been said before. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know where that came from. Now, I Well, following Dre's split from Ruthless, a rivalry naturally developed between Dre and Easy e There's a lot of bad blood there. Uh. But it wasn't Easy that started it. It was Dre. Dre absolutely eviscerated Easy on the chronic second single, Dre Day, and mm. seemingly he did it for no reason at all. But didn't Easy take all that money from him? Easy did take all the so money. That's a reason, right? That's a reason, but yeah, come on, man. That's you threaten the guy's mother. Yeah. Money is money will get you killed. You think, don't mess with money. That's I what, think once you threaten a guy's mom, like that's when like all like I think uh, that's when the, the, the slates wipe clean there. All right. But Dre should have known better, because even though Easy wasn't super hardcore, he was still a hell of a lot more real than Dre. For example, after NWA broke up, Easy started selling dope again just because he was bored. Oh. Hey, my dad worked for Wackenhut. What? After the NYPD, <laughs> because he just had to get back in the game. What the hell is this public masturbation business? Wackenhut? You've heard of Wackenhut. I never heard of Wackenhut. We've literally done this joke conversation No, before. honestly, you have never mentioned Wackenhut no, before. Have you? You've, ne you've never mentioned Wackenhut. Never Wack heard If you it. have mentioned Wackenhut, I don't remember it. What, what is it? It's a place that your dad takes you when you've been bad in order to jerk out all the bad sauce. Right? <laughs> all right, we don't need to go into that. <laughs> well... Easy E, after Dre Day, his feelings were legitimately hurt. And not just by Dre, because Ice Cube had piled on him as well with possibly the best diss track of all time, No Vaseline. But No Vaseline Ooh. was against, like, every uh, former member of NWA. But Easy got it pretty hard. That's pretty brutal there, yeah. I mean, it is important to remember, once again, these are very sensitive artists. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and Easy uh, e was very the, sensitive. The hard, uh, the hard artifice. No Vaseline. What was that about? I don't want to. I, it's about the Wacken Hut. Uh, it's actually a very oh, similar oh, story. Yeah, 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 yeah. But Easy, he didn't take out his hurt feelings on Cube because I don't know. Ice Cube's kind of untou untouchable. It's like once Ice Cube took you down, like it's fucking done. Like mm. you, you can't come back from that. Okay. So instead, Easy E took it all out on Dre. Easy responded to Dre Day with damn near a whole EP called It's on Dr. Dre 187 um Killer. And it's fucking awesome. It's one of my favorites. It's so good. 
So like, he wrote an entire album just because he, uh, Dr. Dre hurt his feelings. Yeah, it revitalized his career. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. It's like him and fucking Alanis Morissette. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's angry albums sometimes save you. So Dr. Dre is the Dave Coulier to Easy e as he was to, uh, to Alanis. Very, very, yeah. quick, very quick side note. Uh, Tupac and Alanis Morissette almost opened a restaurant together. Really? Oh, I would have quit. I would have Oh, man. <laughs> and, one more, and one more fun fact about Tupac. Uh, he read for the part of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Yeah, they, yes. who else read for that? You mentioned some Dave other, Chappelle. Dave, Dave Cha- Chappelle also read for that. I think they cast properly. <laughs> I cannot see Tupac as Bubba because I don't think that he would have gone along with a lot of what Forrest Gump was saying. <laughs> so, yeah, and easy. Like it went even further than the song. Well, I think like two of the songs, uh, like "Real Motherfucking G's" and uh, "It's On." I think those are the two that were like specifically towards Dre. The rest of them were fucking great. You know, like "Give Me That Nut" had nothing to do with Dre. That just had to do with cartoon squirrels. Fucking. Oh yeah, yeah. It's fucking. I don't remember. But, did they ever do a Kids Bop? What I think Kids Bop did do some rap music once. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. But he, all, even though like there was only a couple of songs dedicated to it, he dedicated the liner notes to embarrassing <laughs> Dr. Dre because uh, he found one of the publicity photos from Dre's early days and put the picture of Dre in the cream-colored suit dancing with the mm. makeup on in the liner notes. They just roast. They were in roast mode. Yeah. Oh, they were they in were. total roast mode. But you know what also I learned a lot about from from this book was how these albums are put together. Where, like, this next bit about how, like, if they needed, like, they would ghostwrite some of the stuff. Because Easy e wasn't, like, an artist. Like, he was a drug dealer that Dre made into a rapper by taking him line by line, which you see in the movie Straight Outta Compton. And it's interesting how, like, this next bit's about how, like, they'd have to go get some real rappers that were actual criminals in order to add flavor to all their fucking albums. Well, no, Easy e by this point was absolutely a real rapper. Like, he was, like, he was, by that point, by that point, like, he had, uh, you know, I mean, he'd had at least one uh, platinum album. Uh, Like, he was absolutely into his own. Like, what he did is he brought in, like, feature rappers mm. uh and <laughs> but what he made sure to do was like counter like dr dre's uh like, you know i guess like weakness uh easy e brought in actual criminals okay uh he brought in two nutty block crips from the watts jordan downs projects named dresta and knockout both the dudes fresh out of prison oh my then Easy went on Arsenio Hall and called Dre out, naming him as a studio gangster. Ooh. Even though most of them outside of Easy E could be called the same. But to say right. it in public, well, that's a big diss. And this was all taken yes. so seriously, we can't stress enough. The media was salivating over this stuff, and it was really, it was uh, like life and death. Uh, because that's how it ended. Yeah. Yeah, because as fun as yeah. all this seems, like this I know, feud. That's the whole the whole time in the back of my head, this is kind of fun. And then it's just, it, it, then you remember how serious it was. Yeah, because I, I actually remember when I was a kid, like being like really confused. Like, but I thought Easy e and Dre were friends. I know, it was <laughs> very hard to understand. <laughs> and your, your mom must be like, sometimes, you know how sometimes you go outside, little Marcus, and the coyotes don't come to you like they used to. <laughs> You're like... Yes, mother. Yes, I miss the dirt dogs. It's like no, no. Sometimes friends fall apart, much like Easy E and Dre. Yeah, Aww. it was confusing because I thought anyone that I saw on television was basically buddies. Yeah, I just or, or read about you know because mm-hmm. that that was true until like 1967 because of the Tonight Show. Right. Yeah. 
Well, as fun as all this seems, like this feud had very real consequences. Mm. Now, as Westhoff points out, rat beefs weren't new by any measure, but they had mostly been friendly, and most of them just had to do with like who is the better rapper. Right. But now it was personal. Now it had to do with street cred, and now actual violence could break out. And it did. Mm. At a golf course, of all places. Ah. During the filming of the Montel Jordan video, Something for the Honeys. I like Montel. He's six foot eight. Really? Yes. He sings about it. <laughs> this is how we do it. Exactly. Wow. This is how we yeah, do we it. Yeah, we kind of punch over every time we have to go through the doors. And when we were running around planes, we do it very uncomfortably. Um, yes. Now, there is a dispute as to who started this fight, but long story short, the Reckless and Death Row guys were yelling gang affiliations at each other. Someone's foot got run over by a golf cart, and a brawl ensued. And again, it's Caddyshack, but everyone is armed, and they're very serious. <laughs> yeah, and you know, apparently the video, like, I couldn't find the video, but apparently there's video footage of it, and it looks very goofy. Right. Uh, and, you know, nobody died, and nobody even got seriously hurt, and to the best of my knowledge, like, this was the extent of any sort of physical confrontations between reckless records and death row records but it set a precedent absolutely it's not like the cartoons where you grab your cartoon cat foot and it's flat and it's throbbing and it's red and then you're angry and you see a temperature thing go up 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 up, and then it breaks (laughs) and then you know you kind of figure it out that way but yeah i mean now this shit talking could actually reach out and touch real life Mm. but the guys who would be touched the hardest actually started off as friends Tupac and Biggie. They first met each other in 1993, before Biggie's first album, but after Tupac had already become a star. Biggie flew to California for two reasons. One, get some of that sweet Cali weed. Oh, right. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> and two, to meet Tupac. Because... Tupac was one of the most respected guys around, and Biggie was starting to get a name. No one really knew him outside of Brooklyn, uh, but he figured he had enough cred where he could go and meet the guy. And so he went. uh, He talked to a dealer. Turns out the dealer knew Tupac. Tupac invited Biggie over to his house where they played with unloaded machine guns and handguns while Tupac cooked steaks in the kitchen. That's extremely fun. That's so much fun. What a nice afternoon that is. And after that, every time Biggie went to L.A., he'd sleep on Tupac's couch. And every time Tupac went to New York, he'd take a limousine to Bed-Stuy and shoot craps with all the neighborhood guys. Mm. Tupac even mentored Biggie, letting him perform at concerts and giving him advice in the music business. In fact, it was Tupac who was responsible for Biggie staying at Bad Boy Records because Biggie wanted Tupac as his manager. But Tupac declined, saying Puffy was going to make him a star. And he did. Yeah, he did. Meanwhile... Tupac was falling deeper into the criminal world, blurring the lines between playing gangster and acting gangster. Mm. In 1994, Tupac went to New York to shoot the basketball movie Above the Rim, in which Tupac played a drug dealer. Great movie. To research the role, Tupac hooked up with the New York music promoter and all-around scumbag... Haitian Jack. Oh, man. All I know about Haiti is I learned from Kevin Barnett from Roundtable of Gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yeah, I mean, Haitian Jack, I mean, this guy was fucking serious. He robbed drug dealers. That's not safe. (laughs) No, that's that's not not safe. He robbed drug dealers and survived. Yeah. Now, even, even Biggie said, 
Do not hang out with Haitian Jack. Right. Stay away from Haitian Jack. It's just unfortunate that they never gave Tupac a role as like a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> you know, because I just feel like he was kind of emulating whatever whatever role was given to him. Well, that's what they say is that like uh, eventually uh, if Ice Cube would have died and Tupac would have lived, they would have had the exact same career. Eventually, I could totally see eventually it. Yeah. Tupac would have been in Are We There Yet? Yeah. I think Tupac could have done a lot better if he'd hung out with Margaritaville Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's a very sensible businessman. And Haiti is a beautiful place. Of course, they were devastated by that earthquake. Of course. Of course. But Tupac didn't listen to Biggie or anyone else. Mm. And it was with Haitian Jack that Tupac was charged with committing the worst act of his life. In October of that year, 1994, a woman named Ayana Jackson accused Tupac, Haitian Jack, and other members of their entourage of gang raping her in Tupac's hotel room. Tupac denied being involved to the end, although he did later admit to being in the next room and blamed himself for not doing anything about it. But a New York jury thought otherwise, found him culpable, and Tupac was sentenced to one and a half to four and a half years in prison. Mm. But in the interval between the crime and the sentencing, events would transpire that would be the unofficial kickoff to the East Coast-West Coast rap war. Mm. See, even though Tupac was facing full charges, Haitian Jack pled out on two misdemeanors. And in Tupac's mind, this meant that Haitian Jack had to have been a snitch mm. and was setting up Tupac to take the fall for the crime. And this wasn't something he just kind of like told his buddy, you know, in conversation. Uh, he made his feelings known across the pages of the Daily News. Now, as Westhoff writes, calling out a man like Haitian Jack in the press is not a sensible move. Mm. But Tupac thought he was invincible, an actual gangster. But Haitian Jack was about to show Tupac just how wrong he was. Yikes. Unfortunately, though, the site of that lesson happened to be Quad Recording Studios in Times Square, where Biggie and Puffy just happened to be recording that day as well on a different floor. Tupac showed up to the recording studio that day to record a guest verse for a guy named Little Sean. Just before he was about to get on the elevator, he was approached by a trio of guys wearing army fatigues. And since that was the Brooklyn style at the time, mm. Tupac assumed these guys were with Biggie. But just as the elevator doors opened, the guys pulled out guns. And Tupac went for his gun, but in trying to pull it out of his waistband, he accidentally pulled the trigger and shot himself instead. Uh, oh my God. This the... is why none of these guys have training. Yeah. That's what they were talking about with Easy e back in the day, too. He wanted all these AK 47s and shit, but he didn't know how to use them. So he had yeah. to hire somebody from the Fraternal Order of Police to come and like teach him how to use everything. It's really quite embarrassing. That's the, the Plaxico Burris move there yeah. when he, he got sentenced for shooting himself. Yes. I feel like he already served the uh, the punishment for the crime happened very quickly for yeah. him but yeah so after tupac uh shot himself the guys uh beat the fuck out of him stole his jewelry for good measure and left and by the way tupac uh always told everyone that he got shot five times mm -hmm. he did not get shot five times okay he shot himself once and all the other wounds were from the three dudes pistol whipping him okay uh and after he got his ass kicked he stumbled into the elevator took the elevator upstairs when the doors opened, there stood Biggie, Puffy, and a friend of Haitian Jack's named Jimmy Henchman Rosemond. His name was literally Henchman. Henchman. <laughs> that was his nickname. I guess you better enjoy being a henchman and have no upward mobility with your career because that you can't be like CEO Henchman. 
Uh, it doesn't happen that way. My one job is to get beat up by Batman, <laughs> and that is it. I do not get coffee. I do not go get lunches. All right, I get beat up by Batman, and eventually I get drowned helping out the Riddler. <laughs> uh, later, Tupac said when he looked in Biggie and Puffy's eyes at that moment, they looked, quote, surprised and guilty. Hmm. However... In 2011, a guy named Dexter Isaac fully admitted to being one of the guys who beat up Tupac. He said it was specifically on the orders of none other than henchmen working on behalf of Haitian Jack. Okay, and it's so just a coincidence. It's just a coincidence. And it's damn yes. near positive that Biggie and Puffy had nothing to do with this. Probably didn't even know about it. And even if they did know about it, they weren't going to tell Tupac because Tupac was going to go back home. And Biggie and uh, Puffy, they still still had to deal with Haitian Jack. Right. And Henchman, the reason why he was there was he was the manager of the guy Tupac was supposed to record with that day, Little Sean. And the Bad Boy crew, they were just friends with yeah. Little Sean. So they were just hanging out. But Tupac didn't see it like that. Because he had also become so egomaniacal that everything had to be, be about him and had to be about him being the world's biggest criminal and all this kind of shit. But it's like, no, man, you threw your own future down the toilet. Those were your allies. Biggie and Puffy, were, they would have helped you out. And things escalated even more when Tupac went to prison almost immediately after the assault. He said guys were constantly coming up to him telling him like, hey, Heard Biggie and Puffy shot you. They're doing it just to cause shit. Yeah. Everybody's full of shit. Yeah. All of these stories are, are half bunkum. You, <laughs> half bunkum? Oh, yeah. Bunkum. Bunkum. Whoa, half yeah. bunkum. Oh, we got a two out of three on the bunkum scale here. Are we going to go ding, three ding, for ding, three? Ding. Wow. That's that's my bunkum bell. Every time I hear bunkum, I'm going to go ding, 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 ding. <laughs> bunkum bell. That's why you got to stand up in the cafeteria and say, guys, I just want to let you know I've heard about the rumors. Mm -hmm. I'm good. <laughs> No need to continue to come up to me and tell me this stuff. You know, I can really kind of see, like, what Tupac was thinking because yeah. a little a, a little after the shooting, Biggie released a song called Who Shot Ya? Right. with lyrics that could be read as a veiled admission of guilt, specifically, you rewind this, big boys behind this. Right, but, and this was all over the media. Yeah, but the problem yes. was Who Shot Ya? was recorded months before mm. Tupac was shot. Uh, it had nothing to do with him because it's not like gangster rap songs about a dude getting shot are exactly rare. Oh, all right. But you saying that maybe Biggie could see the future. Is that possible? <laughs> hey, Biggie hanging out with John Titor. <laughs> and he knew what was going to happen, and so he buried all those songs. That's where he recorded all those extra songs that have the five concurrent albums that came out after his death. Or he and him and Tupac, they made friends, faked each other's death, and now they're living in gay paradise in St. Martin's under, under other names and plastic surgery. I do want to believe that's true. <laughs> that, that would be a fine conclusion to all this. It really does come down to the collective unconscious, though, and just sort of chaos magic all of this stuff just fits so perfectly with the with the way it concluded yeah it really like it, it's like it was it's one of those things where it's like it's almost destined to happen uh so tupac you know like he he believed wholeheartedly that it was uh puffy and biggie behind it uh and none, nothing anyone could say otherwise uh could sway him so he just sat in prison and stewed and that was but that was between answering letters from jim carrey and tony danza jim the uh jim carrey jim carrey well jim carrey because yeah because tupac was on in living color oh. and i'm I guess, yeah they knew each other yeah. From back in the day. Yeah. I don't know how Tony Danza fits into it, though. This is what I'm going to say to you, Tupac. I hope you're doing good in jail because a lot of people ask me all the time, who's the boss, right? Who's the boss? <laughs> I'm going to tell you what. Uh, you're the boss. Wow. Okay. 
Then he tap dances. It's just like a just, like a, just a fucking cassette AM tap dancing and, and singing right. old jazz standards. I remember that when if if you could tap dance, you were the next level entertainer. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, Gregory Hines. Yeah, big deal. But Tupac, he wasn't going to get out of prison anytime soon, not without help. His bail had been set at $3 million. Oh and even though his first two albums were extremely successful, the second one more than the first, Tupac didn't have anywhere near that kind of money. Because you remember, he'd had a lot of legal troubles leading up to this. Right. So he had a lot of bills to pay. The man who did have that money, though, was Suge Knight. According to original gangsters, Tupac got a hold of Suge Knight first, asking for help, as he had no one else to turn to with that kind of money. And in this, Suge saw a fantastic opportunity. He already had the best producer on the West Coast in Dre, so if he were to add the best rapper in Tupac, Suge Knight would be set, and Death Row could be one of the biggest labels on Earth. Mm. And so negotiations were made for Tupac to move from Interscope to Death Row, which actually was under the Interscope umbrella, so it wasn't really much of a problem anyway. Hmm. The problem here was the deal. In exchange for Death Row legal services and bond, Tupac appointed Suge as his manager and signed on for three albums with Death Row Records, essentially selling himself to Suge Knight completely because now Suge Knight is both his manager and his label rep. And he's the one who bailed him out, right? And he's the so one who... This is, indent this is indentured servitude, isn't it? He's a little bit. I mean, Tupac was, um, he was getting kissed on in the downstairs... But other men's downstairs, possibly in that's the jail. a jail. That, that that's a rumor. That's a rumor. He was he wasn't handling jail well, so he reached out to Suge, and Suge is like, <laughs> <laughs> like he pulls out a fucking scroll, like it's like the whole thing, like it, his signature burns on the paper, which is essentially this deals what kind of dooms Tupac. It sends him on the the collision course with Biggie. I yeah. didn't realize that Suge Knight sounded like Sweet Tooth from Twisted Metal, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, less than a month after Tupac agreed to this deal, the $1.4 million bond was paid and Tupac was back out on the streets. Mm. But the thing was, that $1.4 wasn't really paid by death row. It was an advance on future royalties, which binded Tupac to Suge even closer. So I it was see. it was a loan. So right, Death right, Row right. wasn't really paying Tupac. Tupac was paying it. Tupac was paying yes. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just on the back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was yeah. just paying ah. it on the he was just it was pretty much like a no interest loan. And while Suge was there visiting Tupac in prison, he was told all about the supposed plot on Tupac's life on behalf of Biggie and Puffy. And Suge believed him wholeheartedly. Yeah. Or at the very least, saw a hell of a business opportunity in right. front of him. Yep. Oh, I thought you were going to say, or whole-buttedly. <laughs> <laughs> See, separate, Suge and Tupac were volatile, but not explosive. But when they joined forces, it was like setting a match to gasoline. And a lot of people, including Tupac and Biggie, were about to get burned to death as a result. A lot of people made a lot of money. This mm -hmm. is where yep. this is where this was like it, it transformed into something so much bigger than it than it was before. They'd already made Good. a lot of money, but once Tupac signed on to Death Row, uh, that is when Death Row really exploded. That's what that's yeah. when things blew up for them because dr the the Chronic and Doggy Style were huge, gigantic hits, but none of them compared to what Tupac sold. No, 
And Biggie nope. was about to sell even more records as well. Yes, a hard lesson is about to be learned. But I'll tell you what, next week we're going to be getting into some hardcore conspiracies. So we're going to talk about the fact that fucking Tupac is still alive. He's not. Um, he's, we're going to talk about I just saw him on it. a YouTube video. <laughs> yeah, see? Yeah. You see? He we're going to talk about a lot of shit. Absolutely and, uh, not. There's, there's a very good reason why his uh, posthumous, uh, posthumous material is uh, so uh, large, which we'll get into next uh, Open next the episode. casket! <laughs> I don't want to see his fucking bones! <laughs> Everything uh, about the Biggie and Tupac case uh, is, is, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story, yeah. uh, but the reasons uh, behind them uh, are uh, reasonable. They're playing to see why people, go, they're playing to see, and they're, and they're, they're going to, we'll get into it, because a part of it was like, there was a $400 million lawsuit against the LAPD saying that they had, fi- they had fixed their uh, murders, which is the part of the reason why the conspiracy theory got so big, but we're going to get into the reason then, which I also believe is just as crooked, why that conspiracy theory got fucking popped. Yeah, so we'll get into all of that stuff here on the next episode. Great, great, uh... Outline though, great base, uh, great, uh, great uh, amount of information there. So thank we you can very really much. Get, uh, no. So we can all, we can jump off of that for the next one. All owed to original gangsters. Like it, it's wow. a, it's such a fan, it's such a fantastic, uh, such a fantastic history. And uh, yeah, well researched. It's uh, I cannot cannot uh, recommend this book uh, enough. Yeah, so and good, man. So good. Yeah, this please. Man's, please spike this man's sales this What's week. What's the name of the guy again? The author uh, Ben Westhoff. Ben Westhoff. Yeah, check very out good, that dude. Book. What a great story, man. I yeah. fucking love this shit. This is the kind of story that get, you get really involved in because you yeah. start like you see the personalities and it's so human. Like they, the way that they all mm. like and it's watching fame change these guys yeah. and the idea of like the the idea of your fantasy of being a criminal meeting the reality and what that then has repercussions uh, in real life. I love yeah. that kind of shit. I know. Yeah. And now it's so much sadder too. You know, just being in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy was the first place I lived here. Mm-hmm. You know, you really get to humanize all this stuff as opposed to just being a chubby boy in Wisconsin. Yeah. And it's just, it is it is also kind of sad in hindsight because these guys should have just been they should just be plain police officers on law and order as well uh, or yes, whatever yeah. they wanted to do no, you know this this story is uh, just such a great example of uh, be careful who you pretend to be yeah uh, and uh, especially especially Tupac not necessarily Biggie uh, no, I would say actually especially Tupac and, and Puffy uh, because we'll get into next episode on how badly Puffy fucked up and yeah. how it really uh how it really led to the disaster that came in 1996. All well, right. Good job, Marcos. Very Dan- good job. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's see here. So what do we want to do? We have a bunch of live shows coming up, and we have to clarify one thing. What's this? Is it Ticketmaster? It's Ticketmaster. Okay. It's these so, fucking stupid-ass, badly designed websites. Yes. So we apologize for the confusion out there. We got some VIP tickets. We're going to start doing that because we couldn't see everyone that we wanted to see at the other live show. So this is just going to be a way to streamline it. But then we also just have the regular price tickets. Yeah. And for yes. some reason when you went on there the first thing you saw was $100 or 135 bucks but that's not that's not the price. Yeah. So we're, we're working on that the best we can. I have no idea how to talk to these idiots over the, there. So the vast um, vast majority of the seats for our live shows, you know, they're regular ticket price. The the VIP is like something new that we're trying out like it's uh, you know like a meet and greet session afterwards yes. everyone gets like a free poster and like a lanyard and I know Henry loves lanyards. Who doesn't love a lanyard? Everyone loves a lanyard. But yeah, I love like a, lanyards. Yeah, it's so it's something new that that we're trying yes. out, but we're we're definitely not like you know 
we're not punishing uh, our we're not no. punishing our uh, everyday fans in any way whatsoever. No, absolutely, absolutely not. So apologize for that uh, kerfluffle. As always, this is a learning process for us. We go through it just as you go through it, and uh, yeah. So there you go. So apologize for those. Uh, for a little confusion on that front. Thank you for Patreon, everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving to our Patreon. Uh, Henry and I will be resuming our interview series here as soon as possible. Schedules have been absolutely crazy because Henry is shooting a, in a feature film, and we've just been traveling around a bunch. So yeah. thank you all so much for giving to that. Without you, none of this is possible. But we actually have a bunch of fun shit already lined up for interview-wise, yes. which I'm very excited for, so stick around for that. Um, follow us on Twitter at Henry Loves You at Marcus Parks at Ben Kissel. Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Fantasty at Marcus Parks. Parks at Ben Kissel, the number one, and follow us on all of the stupid horseshit at LP on the left. That's right. All right, everyone. Hail yourselves. Hail Satan. Again. Magustalations. Hail me. Butthole. Huh? I just said butthole. You said butthole. <laughs> is that a say. new? Is that what you're trying to? I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs>